0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Video has gone viral of police arresting a Loveland woman with dementia. CPR's Claire Cleveland is covering the story.
1: The family of 73-year-old Karen Garner is suing. Three of the officers involved have resigned, and the department has agreed to improve training around its approach to people with dementia.
0: Claire joins us, along with a former cop who now does the sort of training Loveland has agreed to plus tips for caregivers. Then she was the first black sleeping beauty for a big local theater company, and she wants to ease the path for future actors.
2: It's such a real thing that kids of color coming into predominantly white performing spaces have a lot of challenges to face. Um, I know it personally as a kid who was an actor, who grew up to be this adult who still has issues with predominantly white spaces. Because
3: of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community, many giving as evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Today we consider the fallout and the lessons from a police encounter in Colorado last year. There's video, so it's drawn media attention. Hundreds of thousands of people have now watched the video of Karen Garner's arrest in Loveland. The
3: 73-year-old with dementia was injured after being forced to the ground by a Loveland police officer, and her family is now suing.
0: Police often don't know how to identify people with dementia, let alone how to approach them. More on that shortly, but to get us up to speed on the case of Karen Garner in Loveland, CPR's Claire Cleveland joins us. She's been following this story. Hi, Claire.
1: Good morning, Ryan.
0: And remind us how the 73-year-old Garner initially came into contact with police.
1: Garner was at a Walmart, and she left the store without paying for about $14 worth of merchandise, Um, She was stopped by employees who, according to a lawsuit, did not let her pay for the items, but they did get them back. Then someone from the store who saw the incident called police, told them where Garner was headed. Body camera video shows an officer approaching her in a field as she was walking home, picking wildflowers on the way. The officer, Austin Hopp, confronts her. When she starts walking away, he grabs her arm, puts it behind her back, forces her to the ground, and handcuffs her.
0: So Karen Garner was arrested. The family, as we heard now, suing. What do they say happened?
1: They say she had a dislocated shoulder, fractured arm, and sprained wrist, and that her arms were badly bruised from the encounter. She was booked at the jail and put in a cell where they say she was then ignored for hours until a jail staffer later realized she was injured and then transported her to the ER.
0: There is another incident related to this case caught on video. This one is at the station. What does it show, Claire?
1: This one shows the arresting officers Hop and another named Daria Jalali and another officer re-watching the body camera footage and laughing. Uh, This is in the booking area, and Garner is handcuffed to a bench in a nearby cell. At one point, one of the officers can be heard saying to the others, ready for the pop, indicating her shoulder popping, which can be heard on the body camera footage.
0: What happened to the officers involved?
1: The two officers who were on the scene, they resigned. So did a community service officer named Tyler Blackett, who helped book Garner into the jail and is also on that laughing video. According to a spokesman for the department, none will receive a severance package. During a press conference to announce the officer's resignation, Loveland Police Chief Robert Tyser said, "...the goal of his department has always been to make the community proud, and that they had failed, and that they are sorry." He also said the video was painful for him personally to watch. Alongside the lawsuit from Garner's family, there's a criminal investigation of the officers led by the nearby Fort Collins Police Department and the local district attorney.
0: Is the Loveland Department doing anything else to avoid incidents like this in the future?
1: Yes. The department says it will now require officers to do training on interacting with people with memory impairments like Garner, such as Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia.
0: Claire, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. CPR's Claire Cleveland. Now, two people with deep knowledge in this arena. Jody Gregg of Aurora is a former police dispatcher and now helps care for her mother-in-law who has dementia. Eric Bianchi is a former police officer who trains first responders to interact properly with people who have memory impairments, the sort of training that Claire just alluded to. And I'm grateful that both of you could be with us. Jody. uh, given your experience in law enforcement and as a caregiver, I wonder what your reaction was to the video out of Loveland.
3: My first reaction to it was that I could envision my own mother-in-law in in a similar situation. Um, She's done some kind of crazy things here and there. She's had these delusions that she can just give a cashier a code and walk out the store without paying for things. And she's tried to do that on more than one occasion that we've caught her in. Um, So I, I could easily envision her running into law enforcement in a similar situation. And it was pretty hard to watch that video. Um, the officer that responded to that call didn't seem to take more than a second or two to try to even find out what uh, Miss Garner was thinking and why she was walking away from him. So that was pretty discouraging to see.
0: Your mother-in-law has something called Lewy body dementia. And before she lived with you, I understand she had multiple interactions with police, although it sounds like they were hostile situations. But uh, in brief, what happened?
3: Um, She did have multiple encounters with them because as part of the disease that she has, she has incredible hallucinations and delusions. And off and on for many years, she thought that somebody was trying to break into her home. And when this first started, she would call us and be terrified and tell us that someone was trying to break in. And we took that at face value and told her she'd need to call the police. Sometimes she wouldn't hang up the phone with us so we would call the police for her and have them respond to her address. And over the years, they responded probably dozens of times. Um, It was pretty infrequent at first and it got more frequent unfortunately toward the end of her living in her own home. Um, So she, she had quite a few encounters with them there. And thankfully, nothing terrible had ever happened and nobody ever was actually trying to break in. But um, after living in her own home for many years, she sold the house and moved into an apartment. And the hallucinations, of course, continued. And probably the worst of them was when she called 911 to report that somebody upstairs with a gun was trying to kill her. And this wasn't true in any way, but of course the police don't know that. And they come responding, assuming that there's someone upstairs with a gun that's trying to do her harm. So it's a pretty tough situation for the officers for sure, because they don't know that she's got dementia and they respond, assuming that someone is there on the premises that's armed. And um, we received a phone call from them after the first incident of this had happened asking us to respond and come be with her. And uh, at that point in time, they put a flag on her address because we explained that she had dementia and that this was um, unfortunately a behavior that could be repeated. Oh. And it did happen again about a week or so later. So it, it's a difficult situation for the officers, but if they can at least take a little bit of time to try to talk to the person and find out what's going on. Um, I think so much of this could be alleviated.
0: Well, and and what a scary situation for your mother in law. What a scary situation for you to discern whether there is an actual threat or merely a perceived threat. So did you find absolutely sometimes that the police were quite sensitive actually to your mother-in-law's condition? It sounds like it might have been a a, a decent w- relationship?
3: I, I think that we had a pretty good relationship with them. Um, I'm not sure <laughs> exactly why we got lucky with that, but I I feel like we did in in some ways. Um, but, but you just never know. It, it depends on the officers that are responding. And of course they change throughout the day and throughout the week and um, change with different locations and so forth. So we we've, have been, pretty fortunate with
0: that. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that your mother-in-law would sometimes go to stores and be under the illusion that she could give a code uh, as, a, as a form of payment. And yes. <laughs> I, I wonder if, if she had a tendency to wander, to, to go places and then you not knowing her whereabouts and whether that complicated the situation?
3: She has wandered. At times, um, she did some of these things prior to her living with us. She she now lives with us and she continues to wander sometimes, even though she's living with us. And it's kind of a difficult balance as a care partner in knowing how much freedom she can have. Um, It's sort of like a child. You have, you know, children that want to go play at the neighborhood park and there's a little bit of risk involved in letting them go play at the park with their friends. And the same goes for her. There's a little bit of risk in allowing her to walk around the block, but she does it regularly, 99% of the time she walks around the block and she comes back. But there have been a few occasions where she walks around the block and continues walking. And after a certain amount of time, you know, she should have already been back. So we have to go and try to find where she's gone. I know that she's gone to local stores a couple of times, and uh, I know she's walked into restaurants and gotten a drink there and come home. So there's a little bit of risk, but like I said, as a caregiver, you also have to allow them to have some freedom. They're not prisoners.
0: Yeah, that balance must be very difficult to strike. All right, Eric Bianchi, you work with the Alzheimer's Association to train first responders, cops included, on how to interact with people who have dementia. I guess, first off, isn't this already part of regular police training?
4: It is to some degree. Uh, However, police officers in the academy are the the focus of training. It's generally on uh, use of force, uh, laws of arrest and search and seizure. There are so much to present to a, a new recruit. Uh, in a very short period of time, and it comes down to how much available time do they have for specialized services and specific skills. And I I know when I went through the academy, we had, uh, I believe, eight hours on mental illness alone. This is back in 1976. It wasn't really very helpful.
0: I mean, what I heard... Jody articulating is that it might depend from officer to officer whether someone's trained. Do you find that there's just a lot of inconsistency among departments and within departments when it comes to knowing to recognize the signs of dementia and how to handle folks with it?
4: I think so. I think that um, an officer with empathy would be able to catch something and realize that something is amiss and, and uh, do some listening. Uh, but we're We're trained to to approach a situation as though it's, uh, uh, we need to take control, we need to be assertive in in certain situations, certainly dynamic situations. And that's counterintuitive to what an officer needs to do when they encounter someone with dementia.
0: I mean, as we just heard described, if you were responding to a scene where the report is that someone... Uh, on the floor above is trying to kill someone else in the building. I mean, I can imagine those being difficult shoes to walk in for an officer. But you said that that someone who has some empathy might be able to catch some signs. What do you train officers to look for? Well,
4: currently. and and I'm you understand that I haven't really had this training until just a few years ago. I was amazed at the level of training and the skills that are taught by the Alzheimer's Association um, and that I'm now presenting. I'm, yeah. uh, it, we're, we're taught to look for certain signs, and then there are specific warning signs that a person has dementia. And you know dementia is, a, is an umbrella term we it like to It includes Alzheimer's.
0: It includes yes. Lewy body that we heard about.
4: And, and we do a lot of um, – the, the training is not only to recognize th- uh, the, the general signs – but also to respond in ways that help uh, de-escalate a situation. Because we usually catch them in very dynamic situations, loud noise, radios, that kind of thing. And what are signs? Some of them, well, most of us, when, when, when I first started uh, with the Alzheimer's Association, I just assumed that... Um, that we were looking at someone with um, uh, memory loss or memory problems. But that's not necessarily the case. We have people who have uh, their judgment is impacted, their vision is impacted. Uh, And so would
0: there be a sign that an officer could immediately look out for?
4: Yeah, a few signs that they would be able to see and understand that there are people who are in varying positions along the continuum of dementia. there are people who are actually living with dementia thousands I think uh, I would imagine who uh, haven't been diagnosed and they're living mm. among us and they're exhibiting signs that uh, are maybe uh, out of the ordinary but when a like pers- what um, Oh I inability to um, to use the right word. <laughs> Uh, to find the right word, and that increases as a person goes down this uh, along this journey. Um, lack of uh, uh, things that they used to do uh, with regularity, making coffee or doing something that is a routine for them that they've been doing for years, suddenly forgetting the steps. Um, But these wouldn't
0: necessarily be things that I could recognize if I'm an officer immediately showing up on
4: scene. I mean, that's pretty complicated. Absolutely. Uh, The training that the Alzheimer's provides is brilliant. It's for caregivers, people who are with the person with dementia along this journey. Um, Police officers see a small slice of that person's life in Mm -hmm. a very short period of time and often very dynamic, very, uh, uh, very and anxiety-provoking, and I think that what they do is uh, a, a police officer understands what they're looking at. Will recognize it rather quickly that something is amiss. And when it
0: comes to actually then dealing with handling the person who has dementia, how might police officers act differently from what we saw, for instance, on the Loveland video?
4: Well, understanding that a, a person with dementia sees. Um, the emotion of a person that is, uh, they're, they're speaking with or that are speaking to them. They see it and they they catch the emotion and they amplify it. So if you come up with um, aggressively a loud voice, uh, it's likely you're going to get that in return. Plus... Mm. Uh, we teach officers to approach if they suspect that they have someone with dementia, they'll approach uh, from the front because periphery is an issue. They they begin to lose some of that periphery, and it startles them if you come up, uh, from the side. Eye level, gentle voice, smile. Um, you want to remove them from the noise if there is any noise. Uh, communicate with them like, like they're people. Don't ask a lot of complicated questions, very simple simple questions.
0: What about someone who uh, has hallucinations, as we heard in Jody Gregg's mother-in-law's case?
4: Yeah. Our advice is to lean into that person's reality. If you have someone who uh, is absolutely sure that their house is on fire or there's someone upstairs who's uh, threatening to shoot them, um, uh, and you recognize the the dementia aspect that may be involved, uh, lean into that. Go upstairs or, or somehow work with that person at their reality, and it does make a difference. If you tell them there is nobody up there. In just a few seconds,
0: do you hope more departments do this kind of training?
4: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's so critical for officers to understand.
0: Eric Bianchi, thanks so much for being with us. Jody Gregg, we're grateful for your time. Two Coloradans at the intersection of policing and dementia. For a few minutes, we're going to talk as well about the role of caregivers and just maybe lawmakers in this. Amelia Schaefer leads the Colorado Alzheimer's Association. Amelia, welcome back to the show.
5: Thank you, Ryan.
0: I do think of the recent policing reforms that Colorado passed, the measures that Congress is considering. Do you think laws need to change specifically to protect those with dementia when it comes to law enforcement?
5: You know, I think when you look at the prevalence of Alzheimer's and dementia right now and also the fact that every single day 10,000 baby boomers are turning 65, we know that uh, the, it's only going to become more important for our whole community to understand Alzheimer's and dementia, which is why we're excited about some uh, legislation that's happening right now in Colorado.
0: Oh, uh, do you want to say just a few words about that? Yeah, House
5: Bill 1122, uh, right now, we're looking at creating a commission uh, to understand what kind of training do first responders, all first responders, need about Alzheimer's and dementia. And we're Very grateful for Senator Culker and uh, Janae to co-sponsor this bill and and hope to see a a meaningful look at what is it that officers need, as you heard. There are a lot of requirements, but um, we certainly think this is an important one.
0: And this is not just police officers, but it's also, you know, firefighters and uh, all sorts of folks.
5: Absolutely. Uh, EMT, you know, again, Alzheimer's and dementia, these are community diseases and so it really does take a community to understand and care for that. You know, the, the old saying, it takes a village. Uh, it is really true with Alzheimer's and dementia.
0: You know, before the break, we heard the story of Jody Gregg in Aurora and of her mother-in-law. And I, I wonder what caregivers can do to minimize the chance of a police encounter with their loved one. Or is that even their role?
5: Yeah, boy, this is a tough one. You know, there is no one-size-fits-all formula when it comes to Alzheimer's or dementia. And I think the tricky part is that needs change at different stages of the disease. And, and on top of that, every family situation is unique. So, boy, it is tough to find the right balance, I think, to uh, help caregivers understand when someone needs um, more supervision, when can they be independent. Uh, there are a lot of things caregivers can do. But as you heard Eric say, many people are walking around right now. About half of the people with Alzheimer's are never diagnosed. So they don't even know, and the caregivers don't even know, that the person might need some kind of um, provision like this. Uh,
0: Jody, Greg mentioned that at a certain point, her mother-in-law was sort of flagged in the system. Is it helpful to create a relationship with law enforcement and just let them know, hey, at this address, we're dealing with such and such?
5: We absolutely recommend that. In fact, we have a whole set of uh, tips on our website. We can give people information through our helpline to help them set up a care community. We, We recommend people telling their neighbors because neighbors may see someone walking outside in their pajamas and not know what to do. But if the neighbors are informed, they can actually be a part of that solution. So we actually recommend setting up a whole care community so that the individual can be independent. You know, Ryan, 70% of people with Alzheimer's and dementia are living at home in our neighborhoods. They are not living in an assisted living or nursing home. And so this is an issue, whether people like it or not or know it or not, that is a part of our everyday lives.
0: And just about the last minute, is law enforcement a frequent subject of discussion among the caregivers for whom you provide support groups?
5: It absolutely is. We have an online message board called Alls Connected. And I just did a search before this interview, and we have over 1,600 posts just about police. And so, if you want to hear from caregivers, go check out Alt Connected or call our helpline at 800 272 3900. And you'll get a chance to understand what you can do as a caregiver, what you can do as a family, or maybe even what you can do as a member of the community who cares.
0: Give that number one more time
5: 1 800. 272
0: Amelia, thank you so much for being with us Thanks, Ryan Amelia Schaefer, Executive Director of the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado joining our discussion about dementia and law enforcement and Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the thrill and baggage of being the first black sleeping beauty I'm Ryan Warner and you're with KRCC and CPR News
2: Across the country, there are black officers and activists working to change a broken system. CPR's new series, Systemic, shares their stories in their voices.
3: Man, there was a whole bunch of scared
4: dudes behind a gun. With the uniform on, with the uniform. You can't roam the street without watching your back from the own law that's supposed to protect you.
2: Look for Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and everywhere you listen.
0: The owners of a sheep and alpaca ranch outside of Westcliff, who are transgender, are building a six-foot fence around their property. It's because of what they describe as routine harassment from people who don't want them there. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce says the tenacious unicorn ranch has become a cultural flashpoint in conservative Custer County.
6: Eight-foot-tall wooden fence posts two feet in the ground, six above.
3: So right now we have uh, around 360 posts.
6: Tenacious Unicorn Ranch co-owner Bonnie Nelson expects they'll probably need another couple hundred to erect the tall wire fence completely around their 40 acres of dry pasture land. It'll take a few more weeks to finish.
4: So instead of cementing them all in, we uh, we do a post hole with the tractor.
6: Here's the other owner, Penny Lowe
4: then we have a jackhammer with a square plate on it.
6: Tamping down the dusty earth around the base of the posts is a lot cheaper than cement. They should hold. Logue and Nelson are both wearing black ball caps and layers of worn work clothes. It's a cold morning. And as always, they have semi-automatic pistols strapped to their thighs. Heavily armed, you're putting up a six-foot fence around the whole place. It's going to seem awfully militaristic,
3: isn't it? I suppose. I, there's, there's some degree where, like, we want that perspective.
6: Mess with us, Nelson says, and we'll mess back.
3: And we're, we, all we want is to be left alone.
6: We're a group of trans women trying to create a haven for trans people. <laughs> On top of being a working ranch, Logue and Nelson are hoping to build a commune where LGBTQ people can feel safe and welcome and isolated from discrimination they say they face in traditional cisgendered society. I mean, I feel saddened that anyone, I don't care race, color, creed, religion, lifestyle, I don't care, um, would live in in Custer County and feel that they they, they were in jeopardy. That's Custer County Sheriff Shannon Byerly. He's a lifelong resident of the region, which nestles up against the jaw-dropping Sangre de Cristo Mountains. He says the ranchers haven't really been all that hospitable since moving in last year. He says most residents didn't even know they were here initially. And then all of a sudden this newspaper article comes out and they, well, I I, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but, you know, they, they just were pretty disparaging about the citizens in general in Custer County. The Unicorn Ranch has been featured in a number of news articles where Logue details severe online threats, multiple instances of local harassment, and even armed trespassing on the property itself. Sheriff Byerly says his office was never contacted about these incidents. He says the picture the ranchers have painted in these articles and the security fortifications they're installing do not indicate they want to be part of the community.
0: I mean, I, I just
6: don't think, I don't think they did themselves any favors by, by, by taking that approach. Some, including readers of the unabashedly conservative local paper, the Sangre de Cristo Sentinel, say the ranchers are exaggerating their claims of persecution in order to bring in large amounts of cash through online fundraising. The ranch's latest effort on the website GoFundMe currently stands at nearly $115,000. Penny Logue calls this criticism a straw man argument. She says questioning when victims speak publicly about abuse is a classic strategy of abusers. As for their feelings on Custer County, Logue says they've tried to make their overall affection for residents very clear. She says it's just there's a small group of locals who make their lives difficult. This county is stuffed full of downright amazing people. And that has nothing
0: to do with politics. We have a lot of friends that are conservative, but we don't have any friends that are Nazis.
6: The new fence will add security to the ranch on top of recently installed surveillance cameras. Volunteers also provide extra armed security at times. Meanwhile, though, Logue says they've really tried to form bonds with their neighbors as well through recycling efforts, through providing handiwork, through starting a community garden in Westcliff. She says these two sides, public and private, don't need to be mutually exclusive. I think that we can, when we choose to engage, be out in the community engaging. And when we shut our gates, because the cis world is a little bit much sometimes... When that happens, she says, they should get to leave the outside world behind, just like anyone else. In Westcliff, Dan
0: Boyce, CPR News. It is the longest-running role of Denver actress Alasia Gray's career. For years now, she has co-starred In Black with a Capital B through Curious Theater Company. The show is set at a candlelight vigil for A Black Life Taken by Police. Gray's character, who's African-American, is speaking with a white attendee who's sobbing and trying to get her head around systemic racism. The black character agrees to do some enlightening if the white woman promises to listen, really listen. For just a few minutes, let's dip into an excerpt.
2: Black needs a capital B because black is an identity. black is black is a name. Black is the name that comes before any other adjective used to describe me. I am Black before all else. Now please understand, this is not my choice, but what has been placed upon me. How is that not the same for whites as well? remember our condition.
1: Oh, I guess I could rephrase that. Can you explain how this differs between white and Black? Please? There
2: you go. That's it. Think before you speak. (laughs) Now, the difference is that white is seen as the norm. Now, the norm doesn't need to be described with specifics because it's the norm, uh, uh, the standard. Everyone knows the standard. But in this world, anything outside of normal must be identified as such.
1: Okay. I think I understand what you're saying.
2: You see that lady over there?
1: Yes, the woman carrying the baby? What about her? You see
2: that lady over there?
1: Are you pointing to the black woman wearing the sundress?
2: <laughs> <laughs> a woman carrying her baby, a black woman, wearing a sundress, a woman, a black woman. Now, do you know why you didn't use white to describe the lady carrying her baby? I, I just- No, no, remember our condition, acknowledge your privilege.
0: So that last voice belongs to our guest, Denver actress Alasia Gray. And that's from Black with a capital B, which Denver's Curious Theater Company makes available to stream. Gray is a past winner of the True West Award, sort of like a Colorado-specific Tony. She was also the first Black sleeping beauty for a major local theater company. But it has not always been a smooth ride. And Alasia Gray wants to make sure the theater is a more welcoming place for young performers of color and for audiences of color, and Alaysia, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Do you want to say a few words about the scene we just heard? I wonder if you identify with that kind of conversation in your offstage life.
2: (laughs) Definitely. Um, Gosh, there are so many themes in that play, beautifully written by LaMaria Mina, that resonate with me just daily. It's unfortunate that that is a scene that kind of points to the othering of people and specifically even in the lines talking about, you know, the norm or the standard, you know, it's why is white the norm and the standard, right? Like why, for all of us, like that's just default and how we've been kind of conditioned over hundreds of years. And so, yeah, short answer, yes. I yes. can definitely <laughs> resonate with, with that.
0: Well, it's interesting. You just said there... For all of us, you include yourself in making white the norm?
2: I wouldn't say I include making white my norm, but a great example, for instance, is definitely living in Colorado. There are, of course, neighborhoods with, you know, people of color and predominantly people of color. But for the majority, you walk outside and you see mostly white people. And I give this really great example of, You know, my mom and my stepdad and I went to the Bahamas last year before COVID popped off. And I just remember, so my stepdad is white um, and my mom was just really excited about the fact that the Bahamas had all black people. And she's like, hey, you're just going to love it. Everyone's brown like us. And my stepdad was just like, "Well, why does that matter? Like, why is that? Who, Who cares? And it was like, because that is not our normal experience in Colorado to walk out and see all black people. It's normal for us to walk out and see all white people, um, and I think in general in society, oftentimes for white people, it's like I always give the example too of I'm oftentimes the only black person in the room with all white people. But for white people, sometimes going into a room of all black people, they'd be very uncomfortable. It would be outside of their norm. It would feel like, you know, fish out of water for them. But for people of color, we're used to having having to adapt to being the only in a sea full of white people.
0: I hear you you saying, think about what it is to walk in our shoes with those examples, you know. The playwright, LaMaria Amina, wrote this piece, Black with a Capital B, well before the protests after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I mean, the the timing of it is really interesting. It it has just taken on new
2: meaning. Do I have that right? Ah! Yes. And I would say it's odd because I don't know that it's taken on new meaning. I think it's been the same meaning, <laughs> um, unfortunately. And yeah, it was written in 2016 by LaMaria. And it was fresh off of Philando Castillo being murdered and Alton Sterling being murdered by the police. Um, many others, obviously, this is, has happened to. So, yeah, that's what inspired her to write the piece and the Black Lives Matter chapter here in Colorado when she actually wrote it. So, so yeah, it it is crazy that it has stood the test of time and it's unfortunate that it's still very relevant, but yeah, this has been a theme, at least for, you know, the black community, we've been dealing with this for a very, very long time.
0: Yeah. Thank you for saying what you said there. Uh, I think it was an inelegant way to put it, to say new meaning. We had a guest on a while back, a former head of African-American studies at Princeton who argued that white should be capitalized as well, which is not currently the AP style. So the Associated Press, which sort of dictates what newspapers and radio and all these journalists do, dictates that black and indigenous be capitalized, not white. Now, her thinking about capitalizing white is not in the least a nod to white supremacy, but she argues is a way for white people to see themselves as raced, as not the default. I just wonder, because you've starred for so long in this show called Black with a capital B, if, <laughs> if you'd share a few thoughts about that professor's impressions of capitalizing white.
2: Gosh, that's an interesting question because I like to say I'm a, a very like, I won't say glass half empty, half full. I, I can see both sides. I'm that type of person. Uh-huh. But, so I get what she's trying to say. And I also think it's kind of comical in like the idea of, oh my God, white people are left out of being capitalized. So we got to, <laughs> you know, that too. So it's like, Ugh. but I hear what she's saying as to the why for sure. So I, I can't really say I disagree or agree with her, but that's interesting.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Denver actor and arts educator, Alaysha Gray co-star of the long-running show from Curious Theatre, Black with a Capital B. During the pandemic, it's been available to stream. Okay, you talked about often being the only Black person in a sea of white people. And it seems that that experience has been common for you as well in theatre. I mentioned that you were the first Black sleeping beauty for a major local children's production. That was in, I think, 2018, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first off, what did it feel like when you landed that role?
2: I was so excited because first of all, I didn't even plan to audition. Like I was not interested in Sleeping Beauty <laughs> and, you know, immediately. And this goes to, unfortunately, that default. I was like, I don't want to play a witch and I don't feel like being the whatever, you know, like whatever character I could have possibly been cast as. Not even thinking about Sleeping Beauty. Right. I'm thinking about everything else but that character. I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and so the director, he's amazing. Um, Steve Wilson was like, no, please come audition. And the education director at the time was like, please just come audition. And so, yeah, when I got in the room, I just remember I kept getting the sides for Sleeping Beauty. And I was like, it, did, it just dawned on me in that moment of like, oh my gosh, they are also considering me for Sleeping Beauty. It was just something I have never experienced before. And I hate that, you know, just, in my own thinking, it wasn't about, did I think I could play Sleeping Beauty? I know I could play Sleeping Beauty. You know, that's not the question, but historically knowing how casting works, you know, is like walking into a room and just assuming that's not even a role you'd be playing. And so when it, when it shaked out that I was, you know, ended up being Sleeping Beauty, it was just such a, such an incredible experience and honor.
0: And yet there is, there is weight to being the first of something. Did you feel that?
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When did you feel that?
2: Um, I think just throughout the entire rehearsal process. Um, definitely when we got into shows, um, for the good and the bad, you know, just good, definitely the, the reactions of kids of color coming in and like, oh my gosh, there's a black princess. And you know, just that excitement. And not only for kids of color, but for white kids too, to be like, oh wow. And you know, to see an interracial relationship up there and to see adoption normalized. Cause my character just happened to be found in the woods and my parents who found me happened to be white. And it wasn't like a thing in the story either. It wasn't, let's make this story about how she looks different than them. And you know, it was just a story and reflecting how the world actually looks. So definitely a lot of weight there. And and I always say it was the same year um, Black Panther came out and uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry were married. So it was like, it was just representation. And then, yeah, and then weight in like negative ways in that, you know, I loved my cast, but in that regard of being left out of things or being treated different and like comments that were made during um, rehearsals or, before shows were not always the best, so, and that's just you know, being honest. So, yeah,
0: it, you're being honest, but you're also being maybe a little unspecific. Do you do you want to say more about what you experienced, or just leave it at the discomfort?
2: I mean, and that's the thing too, right? Like, as as people of color, we we're always trying to like shield other people's feelings when like you're the person who's offended, and so um, you know one one comment. Specifically, that was made was a question about if I only was cast because I was black <laughs> versus like, am I just cast because I'm talented and I've been working at this theater for a few years and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm hired and I'm cast, not just, oh, because you were black and they were just trying to do something different. It's like
4: hmm.
2: to even imply that is just like, OK, I see where we stand. <laughs> even if it was a genuine question, like what, what would what would make you ask that question?
0: You recently wrote an op-ed called Why Are There No Great Kids of Color in the Performing Arts? Uh, this was for an online publication called HowlRound, which is focused on disruptive ideas in theater. And, you know, Elijah Gray, that's a pretty provocative title. No great, No Great Kids of Color in the Performing Arts. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, definitely. So this was an essay that I wrote. Um, It actually started as literally a reflection assignment in my grad program. Um, And my grad program is in social and environmental arts and is led by Patrice Cullors, who's the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. So, you know, even having that, like, that's who my professors are, right? All, All my professors are very much abolitionist and liberation and liberation of Black people. So that's what we're talking about in class every day. Um, but some of the essays we were reading at the time were um, Linda Noshlin's Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, and Michelle Wallace's Why Are There No Great Black Artists, and Janelle Zara's Why Have There Been No Great Black Art Dealers. Obviously, it's, it's funny because on first glance of those titles, it's like, what? And especially for mine, like, no great kids of color. Like, I'd be mad if I saw that title. Like, what? Yes, there are. So, Um, yeah, they were definitely rhetorical questions, and so as I wrote that reflection, I was like, oh, no, this is a bigger thing. And so I was in process with that essay for a really, really long time.
0: And what made you want to write the piece? It's a reflection, by the way, on your own experience as an actor and on what you've observed as an arts educator, because you do a lot of educating of young people.
2: Yeah, I wanted to write about it because it's such a real thing that kids of color coming into predominantly white performing spaces have a lot of challenges to face. Um, I know it personally as a kid who was an actor who grew up to be this adult who still has issues with predominantly white um, spaces and just the lack of awareness sometimes for students. And I think as adults, we talk about student experiences or, or, or it's just very like hypothetical and it's not like the actual kids experiences or hearing firsthand, like what some of these accounts are and not, like I said, having just like hypothetical maybes and oh, well, what if, you know, so I just thought it was really important to chronicle some of those experiences um, of my students. But then again, also as an educator of color who has been traumatized by many different spaces that I've worked in as an educator. So
0: I've tweeted a link to the piece at CPR Warner on Twitter. What made you want to be an actor? When, and when did you know that that's what you wanted to do?
2: <laughs> I would say pretty young, probably like five or six. I just knew I wanted to be an actor. I would always like <laughs> watch TV shows and cartoons and parrot back what I was hearing and like pretend I was in scenes. Back in the day of like VHSs, (laughs) I would record my favorite shows and literally learn all the lines and then play it back and like pretend I was in the seat. And so, yeah, it's just always been something I knew I wanted to pursue when I grew up.
0: (laughs) When did it occur to you that it was possible that it wasn't just uh, a career other people could have?
2: I think I always knew it was possible I've been really fortunate to have people in my life and and I'm an only child. So that helped like, you know, we have to be creative as only children (laughs) (laughs) growing up, but I had my mom and just family and and teachers who were always encouraging me to pursue it. I never had any of those negative experiences of like, you can't be an actor or you can't play that, you know, like I never had that Thank Goodness. So um, I always knew it was possible and even in the TV programming, I would watch watch Black-centered shows and things like that. So I never was like, I don't ever see anybody that looks like me. Sure, there there can be improvement in that area, but it's not like I didn't have that growing up.
0: Did you ever turn the house or parts of the house into a set or a stage?
2: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. On many occasions, probably every day, every day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was just a an experience of living in your home.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I would say so.
0: Well, before I feel we, think
2: like it still is now, <laughs> like, <laughs> because I teach virtually as well. So, like with my kids, I'm always like having different props and characters show up, and my whole space is like a whole new world.
0: <laughs> when you're teaching kids theater, where do you most see the light bulbs go on? Like, is there is there a pattern to the aha moments that kids have about theater?
2: Oh my gosh, I don't just them being able to create and be silly and tap into emotions and characters without being judged you know there's there's just something about that free spirit of kids and then like I've directed over 30 plus children's theater productions, so that's whether they were already scripts that were out there or devising original pieces with kids but anytime they're able to see like an idea they had then be on stage and them like you know saying those lines it's such a, an honor for them it's like literally magic <laughs> you know so and I always say even when we're needing to project if we're on stage and be loud they're so used to in school or in in the house be quiet sh- exactly be sh- 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 and so this is the one place they're like wait you mean like I can't just be loud I can use my full voice and I can be silly and it, there's not like a consequence because I'm supposed to be behaving you know XYZ so And even when they're shy, because there's a lot of kids who are very shy, too. And then the more that they build their their self-confidence, that in itself is another just treat.
0: Alicia, thank you for using the word silly. I just (laughs) I think maybe this past year it's been so heavy in so many ways. I think I've forgotten sometimes to be silly. I feel like that's a good note to end on. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Denver actor and educator Alasia Gray. She co-stars in the long-running show, now long streaming, Black with a capital B through Curious Theatre Company. She also recently wrote an op-ed titled, Why Are There No Great Kids of Color in the Performing Arts? Finally, Colorado fans of NBC's The Voice have a local hero to root for tonight. Devin Blake-Jones will find out if America voted for him to continue. The Aurora native works at a tech firm but dreams of a singing career. This is Devin's performance of Harry Styles' Sign of the Times.
4: Just stop your crying, it's a sign of the times Welcome
1: to the final show I hope you're wearing your
4: best clothes can't the door on your way to the sky.
3: Yeah.
6: You look pretty
0: good down here. Tonight's a make-or-break moment for Devin Blake-Jones, Colorado competitor on The Voice. And that's Colorado Matters with thanks to these voices. Carl Bielek.
3: Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
0: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
3: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill.
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
1: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.